Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Ian C. Hartman and David Reamer, authors of Black Lives in Alaska, a history of African Americans in the far Northwest. How are you today? Well, thanks for having us. Thank you for being on the show. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourselves and how you got started on this particular project. Sure. Did you want to go first, David? Uh, sure, because then we'll end with you because the project really began with you. Well, completely began with you. I'm a public and academic historian who focuses on a wide range of subjects per- very purposefully. I especially enjoy looking at the connections between minority populations and community development. I am uh, associate professor and chair of the Department of History at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And uh, yeah, I could say a little bit about the beginnings of this project. It really began um, many years ago now, back in 2015 and 16, when we had the centennial commemoration of Anchorage. Uh, Anchorage as a town site was founded in uh, 1915, and there was a uh, to commemorate the centennial of that. We put together a collection of essays, one of which uh, was was on uh, a history of civil rights here in Anchorage. and uh, And David and I did some research for that, and what was really supposed to be a one off chapter in this much bigger volume on Anchorage history has kind of turned into a oh gosh, a project now that has ended up what we're in our seventh or eighth year of it. So uh, the book is, uh, is the culmination of the research that, uh, that David and I have done over these last several years. Great. You talk about the black men who were whalers. Can you give us um, a little bit uh, information about what did they do and how did they get to Alaska? Sure. Yeah. And, and David just can can chime in uh, if I'm missing any details or would like to, to fill out the story a bit more. But we can we can say with some level of confidence that the the first uh, African-American presence in the North Pacific would have been connected to the whaling industry. And so we're going back now to the 1840s and 50s. Um, North Pacific whaling was probably at its height by about the 1870s and, and 80s, and then started some, something of a slow decline. This after the um, the decline of whaling in the uh, in the Atlantic, but um, but yeah, these were these were men who, in some cases, there's a reason to believe they had fled slavery. Um, some of the men were free uh, free men of color from the American North. Uh, all of them believed that a life at sea offered opportunity. And certainly in the case of 
uh, of formerly enslaved people, it was while a very grueling job, uh, something that would have been superior to uh, to a life enslaved. It would have been extraordinarily taxing work, dangerous work. Uh, but again, it was one of the few opportunities available for uh, for men of color at this time. And indeed, as um, you know, Herman Melville, Melville famously pointed out, you know, these whaling ships were among the most diverse workplaces in uh, in the nation at the time, if we can call it that, floating workplaces. How about that? Picture that um, was of William Shortley and Julie Shortley and their daughter. This was a really famous picture because they were so well-dressed. Can you give us more about that family? Sure. So the William Shorey was a was the captain of one of these whaling ships. He was somebody who was extraordinarily skilled by all accounts. He was somebody who was fair to his crew, uh, and he was somebody who made a lot of money in the whaling industry. Most people at the time would have gotten into whaling uh, again because there was some level of opportunity in it. It was a little bit meritocratic. I, I don't want to overstate that, and it was uh, it was possible to to. Make make some quick money fast. But because of the nature of the work, most people really only did it for a, you know, maybe a time or two out. I mean, you know, the typical whaling ship would be would be away for anywhere from a year or two to three years. And, uh, and it was quite the, t- the taxing proposition on men's bodies and on men's time. And certainly if they had any kind of hope for a family life, uh, Shory was one of the few who who really made uh, made a successful career of it so much so that when he retired uh, from whaling he he did so with quite a bit of wealth and in fact he was one of the wealthier um, families in the San Francisco Bay Area while he made his much of his money uh, applying the waters here in the North Pacific uh, he made his home for his family in um, in San Francisco and that's the picture you're referring to I believe was taken in San Francisco chapter two. The Gold Rush. There were so many stories here, but one was of interest, Melvin Dempsey. Was he black or Cherokee? What was going on with him? Uh, well, David may, may be able to remind me. Uh, Dempsey was was quite light skinned. He was indeed African American, uh, and he was one of these one of these men who who had a a longer history in in mining. He had worked claims in the Rockies. He had made his way out farther to the west, and eventually he came up into. Uh, into Alaska. Uh, by the time he got to Alaska, he was he was a little bit older. And by older, I, I, I mean, probably I, I think he was in his maybe 40. So not that old. But remember, this is a time when, you know, again, you you were working your body almost to, to the point of exhaustion and, and um, brokenness. And so by he, the he time was old he was amongst the gold rushers. What's that? He was old amongst the gold rushers. Amongst the gold rushers, exactly right. The context is is important here. And so by the time he gets to Alaska, he, he'll work some claims, but he realizes the real way to make money or to make a, a decent living was to uh, establish businesses that would be patronized by the by the miners and the prospectors and the stampeders. And so rather than, than do the backbreaking work at that phase of his life, he was somebody who uh, I think was much more invested in in building a community and uh, providing some accommodations for the stampeders. Did you want to add anything to that, David? Uh, just regarding the Cherokee specifically, that came from there was a mention or two in the newspapers of the time that called him full blooded Cherokee. So we don't know. We'll probably never know. But there is the possibility that he passed as Cherokee, 
obviously therefore suggesting that there were restrictions uh, socially, <laughs> at the very least, that would have prevented him from enjoying the life that he did in Alaska, the prestige he accumulated, the political elections he won, if he had been known openly as a black person as opposed to Cherokee. This is quite interesting. Uh, you mentioned one of the wealthiest women in the world lived in Alaska, and her name was Lena Walton. What did you find out about her? I, I, I don't know about wealthiest women in, in, in the world. I, I mean, there, there were some, some tall claims. That was undoubtedly one of them. But, you know, again, she was somebody who was able to kind of hobble together a series of successful businesses coming out of the, out of the various resource booms in Alaska. And, and she's really one of a, a long line of black women in Alaska who, who do really quite spectacularly well. Um, you know, this would have been in, in business in the case of Walton. It would have been in the case of law, uh, as we get into in the later chapters, uh, a number of, um, of black women come up and, and do quite well in real estate. I'm thinking of Zula Swanson to name, but one famous example. So Walton, I, I would position as maybe an early example of, uh, of, of, a, of a series of notable um, African-American women who do, uh, who do quite well in Alaska and, and certainly reason to believe to go back to David's point that, you know, these, these opportunities may have been available to them in other places in the United States. Um, but, but for whatever reason, Alaska seemed to be a little bit more of an open freewheeling place that, uh, that did afford these kinds of opportunities, at least at a greater rate anyways. Absolutely, yeah. because very few people escape the gold fields with money in their pockets. And the fact that we have people like Walton, people like Bessie Couture, people like Dempsey, who made it out, shows that there were real opportunities greater than might have been found in the lower 48. You know, this running theme, beginning with the whalers, that there were opportunities bringing people of diverse backgrounds to Alaska. What were the jobs that led the African-American population to uh, fulfill throughout the, the time period? Well, we can we can start with whaling. Uh, from there, we could we could go into the the gold rush era, and if we're talking about the the gold rush era, I, I use the word era because as opposed to just the gold rush, I mean you know this is a period of time that begins maybe in the eighteen eighties and nineties and extends into the nineteen teens before World War One. That would have brought you know prospectors and uh, and miners and others, but again, as um, as David and I were just pointing out, it would have brought the opportunity to what was sometimes referred to as mining the miners, you know, again, whether that was through anything from, uh, you know, old West stereotypes of sex work and prostitution to, uh, opening a laundromat or a restaurant or accommodations. Uh, the military of course plays a, a significant role in Alaska and, um, and black men were quite central to the role of the military in Alaska. So many of the, uh, many of the settlers who came up to Alaska, uh, both white and black, uh, did so through the military. We get into the, the 20th century, and some of the jobs would have included um, state and federal government. Uh, the Alaska Railroad at the time was federally owned, which, uh, which did afford some opportunities for, uh, for men of color as the years went on, despite having a, a rather exclusionary history from, uh, from its beginning. But, you know, those would, those would be a few that come to mind. Um, David, what am I missing? Those are the big ones. Migrant labor, construction, 
um, even in those days, not being the prospector themselves, but being part of the labor to come in to run larger mining operations to build the railroad itself. Now, you talk about the U.S. colored troops and what they were being paid um, during that time period, but it still was a really great opportunity for, for the men. Can you give us information about the Buffalo Soldiers that were there? Sure. The The Buffalo Soldiers arrive in, in Skagway, the end of the 1890s, uh, basically as the, the gold rush in Yukon was Dawson area, this is the Klondike Gold Rush, was wrapping up. And so the, uh, the Buffalo Soldiers who were part of Company L, the 24th Infantry, were really in charge of uh, establishing some kind of a permanent settlement in Skagway. And, uh, and as such, they, they, they served as law enforcement. They served as kind of intermediaries between the region's indigenous population and the, um, uh, the white settlers who, who lived along uh, the Lynn Canal. And they, uh, they were there for a few years and had a real enduring impact. You know, many of the structures in Skagway uh, were, were at least, you know, part of the, the camp that first um, some of the white soldiers were at before the Buffalo soldiers came. But I, I think you're, you're quite right to note that, that, um, that they played this, uh, this really important role, particularly because if I'm, if I kind of go back to Frederick Douglass's great quote about the opportunities that black men um, seized upon to wear the uniform and really convey uh, their claim to citizenship. And so uh, when African-Americans served in the military, you know, throughout the, the latter decades of the 19th century, going back to the American Civil War, it really was a, um, a way to exert that claim of citizenship. And, uh, and that was certainly true in Alaska, as it was throughout the American West and even, you know, through the American Civil War before that and, um, and the Reconstruction years. Now, there were some strange deaths of black miners and others in Alaska. Can you give us uh, some of those stories of how it was so hard for them to live there until strange deaths occurred? Yeah, uh, I'm, I guess I would, I'm, I'm thinking of, of how, of the, the culture shock of, uh, of moving to the far Northwest and if not kind of a, an Arctic climate, certainly in Southeast Alaska, um, what would have been a, a rainforest in a very cold climate, uh, at any rate. And, you know, you, you have, uh, men who, who had to really learn quite quickly how to manage and negotiate this new kind of, um, of environment. And so I think the, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'll ask you to repeat the, the question. Did you say strange deaths? Strange deaths. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there, there would have been any number of, uh, of strange occurrences in Alaska at the time, primarily because of a lack of any real permanent um, law enforcement outside of, say, maybe Company L. And so one of the things that you find in, in Alaska was that the kind of largely unsupervised territory where a, a certain degree of lawlessness prevailed despite the best efforts of um of Company L and, and and David I know has done considerably more research on maybe some of the the, the strange and obscure matters of um, of Alaska history at the time so I'll defer to him if he has any um, anecdotes that he'd like to share. Just that the physical geography, the lack of access to resources, the 
Um, some historians push back at the idea that it was completely lawless, but it was a place where the presence of law enforcement was minimal and easily avoided. Well said. <laughs> yes. Um, people just disappeared repeatedly with no sight, with no follow-up. People died on ships. Their bodies were not recovered. People were lost in the wilderness prospecting obscure remote claims or were never found. This was life in Alaska then, waiting, hoping for the ship to finally arrive with you know one of the regular delivery runs of the steamers in those days, running short on supplies, hoping that you timed everything right between you know buying supplies and when you would have your next chance at buying food again. Everything could be a little bit tenuous. Which goes to show the the nature of the economic opportunities. These people were willing to leave homes they knew, comforts they knew, everything they were familiar with or spent their lives with, and still come to Alaska. Again, cannot overstress enough that that is the power of the economic opportunities in Alaska at the time. Now, you also talked about the hotel industry, and a lot of money was made for um African-American women in the hotel industries. Right. And, and, and again, I think it, it speaks to, to David's point just a moment ago when you have a, a boom and bust economy or, or certainly an economy that's dependent upon resource extraction. One of the things that, that happens is that, that these, these men who come up looking to kind of get rich quick, um, oftentimes if they don't get rich quick, they, they get a little bit of money quickly and uh, have a tendency to maybe spend that money rather quickly. And so uh, when, again, when we're talking about gold rush era, Alaska, the the cost of um, accommodations, the cost of food, the cost of entertainment was just exorbitantly high. But given the amount of wealth that was coming through this because of uh, because of gold or whether it was because of a uh, another uh, strike, you know, we could even take this into the 20th century context and talk about the the oil pipeline days in the 1970s. What you find is young, younger people, younger men, typically with a lot of money in their pockets, um, they're they're not necessarily geared to think about the future or think about what kind of investments they can get into They're quite interested in spending a lot of money on the spot. Therefore, you have this terrific opportunity to take advantage of, uh, of that situation. And you do get, as a result of that, many enterprising people who will come up with ways to kind of get a cut of that, of that money, whether it was through establishing an inn or a hotel or a brothel or, um, or some other place of ill repute or, uh, or entertainment, you would, um, you'd be able to find it. Anything you could do to get some of these guys to part with, um, with their, with their newfound riches is uh, very likely would have uh, would have been part of the landscape. People were desperate for diversions, for entertainment. As much as there was that overriding tension of personal safety, there was also day-to-day monotony. Just given the lack of infrastructure in Alaska at that time, there weren't the options that they would have been accustomed to in the lower 48. So when they had the chances, when they had the little bit of money, they would have spent it quickly to avoid going back to their camps or whatever you know, remote claim they were working. 
you find these in these accounts that these people were almost driven mad by boredom, treasuring magazines, red-eared copies that they saved for decades. Musical instruments were treasures, and you would always find people with them on the steamers who were themselves, you know, the royalty of the voyage. Anything to pass the time and avoid the monotony of otherwise, you know, the day-to-day drudgery. Now we're going to move into Chapter 3, the World War era and the New Alaska. You talk about John Connor, who was a real estate person. Tell us more about that individual. Yeah. Khan is a, a pretty fascinating guy. He uh, he came through Tacoma, Washington, had a personal history of uh, of radical politics, but ended up stumbling into what appears to be, if if not a friendship, uh, maybe we could say an acquaintanceship with uh, with Judge Wickersham, who was one of the more notable uh, public officials in Alaska it, around the turn of the century, the you know, first decade or two of the 20th century. Uh, the Alaska made the transition from military district to territory. Wickersham was, uh, was a particularly influential figure. And so Kana is, um, is one of these people who had kind of dabbled in radical politics in the Pacific Northwest, makes his way up to Alaska, um, eventually to Fairbanks and, uh, and does make the transition to, to real estate. And so he's, he's kind of a funny guy in the sense that, you know, he goes from socialist, uh, some, something of a labor organizer, uh, and did seem to retain those politics, but yet also, um, becomes at least fairly wealthy or comfortable by, uh, purchasing some real estate in, uh, in the Alaska interior and, uh, and at least being fairly well connected to, uh, to Alaska's territorial political establishment, such as it was at the time. When did you see the greatest population of blacks moving into Alaska? Um, David, you, you may want to take that. I, I, you'll, you're, you'll have a better uh, handle on the, on the demographic booms and, and retractions than I will. You really see the biggest coherent influx after World War II. During World War II, you, get, you do get another um, influx of soldiers being brought north, uh, the engineers who worked on the Alcan. But after World War II, once travel restrictions to Alaska had been removed, once the Alcan itself was opened up for public usage in the late 1940s, that is when you see thousands of blacks coming north, especially to Anchorage, but also in lesser extent to some of the other more urban communities, Fairbanks, Juneau, uh, building their own community within their own neighborhood within Anchorage. Now, there were many people who passed for white in Alaska, and one in particular, the story of Tom Beavers mm-hmm. and how the Anchorage Fire Department still regarded him as, as great. What happened to him? Well, Beavers is a, a fascinating figure. He arrives in uh, in Anchorage fairly early on after the town site is established, uh, is a basically is the is the hub and depot for the Alaska Railroad. Um, Beavers, as you correctly point out, uh, passed as white, meaning that that the people in Anchorage at the time did not recognize him or identify him as a man of African descent. He uh, he grew up in uh, in Virginia along the Dan River, and um, and his 
as it would later become clear, the rest of his family, at least his siblings, were uh, considerably darker and much more easily identified as African-American. Beavers, um, while in Anchorage, was, uh, was somebody who, who gained a lot of respect from the, from the early uh, community members in town. He uh, had a little bit of a public life, most, uh, most easily, I guess, discerned in his kind of ascent through the fire department. He was uh, somebody who was an early investor in the land on M Street. If, uh, if your listeners are familiar with uh, with Anchorage, though, they, they may know the what is considered to be the downtown area of Anchorage today, um, where the original fur rendezvous would have been held. They didn't recognize them as the necessarily the modern day fur rendezvous that we all celebrate come February and March here in Anchorage. But uh, Bevers was uh, somebody who had early involvement in that. Um, he, he was he was quite notable in town, and he ended up uh, passing away rather suddenly in the 1940s. I believe it was on a on a hunting trip, trying to to cross a river. And, and David can correct me if I'm I'm wrong about that. But he uh, he was somebody who uh, who really did command the respect, and, and very likely would have um, would have garnered even more uh, influence in town if not for his premature death. Yeah, I believe he died when his the truck he was in turned over in a river they were crossing. Is it a hunting trip he was on or something? Yeah, like that? but while they were crossing the river. And the interesting part of that story, people did not know he was black until his sister came to Alaska to claim the body. Precisely. Yes. Uh, he, he passes away and, uh, and as they're preparing the, the body and making sure that, you know, his, uh, his funeral goes off well and that he's given the send off appropriate for somebody of his stature in the community. His sister arrives, I believe from Virginia, and it's quite the shock to people that again, she is this, this rather, um, dark, uh, skinned African-American woman. And, and she's somewhat confused at the fact that they're maybe unaware of this or, or maybe she's not, we don't quite know. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't read too much into that communication, but in any event, while there was some level of, um, surprise, uh, evidently it didn't stop the, the town from recognizing his contributions. And, and he was of course given a proper burial and his headstone, uh, can be found today in the, uh, in the cemetery in downtown Anchorage. Now, I, I just thought it was so interesting looking at how the men were segregated in the armed forces. And one of the generals really did not want them, the African-American men, to go into town. What was his fear? He, he feared miscegenation. He, Simon Buckner, ironically named after Simone Bolivar, but son of a Confederate general, he was one of the most openly virulent racists I've come across in Alaska history. He believed that society would fall apart if the races were allowed to interbreed. He says this explicitly in his letters about wanting, in relation to not wanting the black Alcan engineers to be working anywhere near Anchorage. 
Yeah, Buckner was a, as, as David pointed out, was a real uh, white supremacist. No other way to put it. He was also at the time of we're talking, you know, World War II, uh, really in in command of the of the military for a period of time. And and, and, and David, if you could relay the story, only because I'm forgetting the details, uh, how how Buckner actually meets his demise, because that's a rather um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to say it's a funny story, but it's a story that is maybe fitting for for Buckner. There was his arrogance. He um, he got moved to the Pacific Theater during World War II after a couple of years in Alaska, and he was the type of man who would show up at the front on islands that were amidst conflict and would be driven around in his vehicles with the flags on them, full markings, bright and shiny, brand new helmet rank insignia fully visible and was something that people had to have a quick recommendation to him to quit. And he was eventually um, sniped, I believe, Hmm. partly because of his, um, how shall we say, lack of awareness on the realities of war and putting himself a little too visible. Yeah, it turns out not the best general. Yes. You know, there was one uh, person, James Willis, and the dance that he had. What costs happened as a result of this dance? What I'm, I'm sorry. What what cost? What costs happened? Right, he danced with a white woman, and all things broke out after oh. that dance. Sure. Uh, you know, again, this this was unfortunately part of our uh, nation's history during wartime, um, as as we see in Los Angeles with the famous Zoot Suit riots and various other places. You know, there was the, the workplace uh, white riot at the Packard plant in, um, in in Detroit amid World War Two. You know, wartime by necessity created um, enormous mobility opportunities for um, for Americans generally, you know, not just African Americans, but white folks and and you know first generation immigrants, whatever the case would have been. And as people move from one part of the country to the next, you know, they they oftentimes bring with them their their regional sensibilities. And in Alaska, uh, what we see is that we've got a you know a critical mass of black soldiers and um, and some white soldiers, and indeed they are segregated, but yet there are these kind of social functions where the the customs, say, of the South, where, you know, many folks may have been from the South, but now they're in Alaska, the customs from where they came from in their small Midwestern town don't quite play out in the same way or as expected. And so um, the incident you're referring to here was uh, was something that really did play out elsewhere around the country, too, is uh, where some of the um, some of the barriers uh, of uh, some of the social etiquette in, in, that you would have found elsewhere kind of collapse in this moment of, um, of wartime migrations. And, uh, and sure enough, when this gentleman goes to, to dance with a white woman, uh, he, is, he is immediately targeted and the woman is called all kinds of names. And, uh, and, and there's a real threat that violence could escalate on a far greater scale. And, um, and fortunately, it, it, it didn't go too much beyond that, but it was a it was a a, a point that that was a it was a time of inflection where you could have actually had a a very serious um, episode of racial unrest in which many 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 people could have been hurt or killed. 
Chapter 4, Discrimination, Opportunity, Community, and Post-War Alaska. You talk about 1948 and the public hanging. What happened there? D David, did you want to discuss that one? Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the question. The the public hanging, we're talking about in Juneau, I believe, correct? Oh, I don't remember all the details offhand. I can I can I can give give a little bit more. So you know, Juno, which is an, an area of the book that we don't pay as close attention to, admittedly, where you know much of the book is actually focused on um, on Anchorage to a lesser extent, Fairbanks, and then to a lesser extent, other points in uh, um, in the territory and then in the state. And in Juno, had I I would suggest the the smallest black population among the three major urban areas of uh, Alaska, and that would still be the case today, incidentally. Um, and uh, as Alaska is is transitioning again from a territory and really making the case for um, statehood, there is a discussion about the death penalty and whether the death penalty will become part of um, part of the state uh, part of the statehood laws, whatever the case would be. And the uh, the men you're talking about in Juneau in the 1940s are um, very very likely, as far as I can tell, wrongfully accused of. Uh, of a robbery and uh, ultimately are are sent to their death and, uh, and and hanged and they are as far as as we can tell the the last people in Alaska to be uh, to be executed legally um, once Alaska joins uh, joins the nation as the 49th state there will not be um, capital punishment and so it's it's kind of a dark chapter in uh, in Alaska history where we have uh, again you know this this moment of miscarried justice um, taken out against these uh, these two men who who by all indications were wrongfully accused of the crimes they were alleged to have committed it's a common story. I mean, again, I, one of the things that we're trying to do in this book, I think, is is make connections between Alaska and um, other parts of the country, but then also kind of point out what in Alaska is um, maybe unique or exceptional when it comes to uh, wrongfully accusing men of color of, uh, of crimes and, and punishing them for crimes that they very likely did not commit. Uh, Alaska, unfortunately, does sit in that broader American tradition. And like you said, um, just like it elsewhere, you find that people are activists. And in your book, you talk about uh, a lot of um, people who were activists during that time. And even the governor set up a human rights commission. Tell us about that. Yeah. The, so the Civil Rights Commission was, was in response to uh, a flurry of activism, excuse me, a flurry of activism and some uh, Evidence that that one just could not ignore about the degree of uh, of racism and racial hostility in uh, in Alaska, you know, shortly after the statehood movement, and so just to to kind of point out a couple of, of the bigger names uh, associated with that, you know, there would have been uh, Willard Bowman and Blanche McSmith, and then early on the creation of the uh, of the NAACP going back to the 1950s, and so uh, it. it a small but very active cohort of African Americans in Alaska in the 1950s and 60s were were really quite um, 
determined to ensure that African Americans and Alaska Native people, among other uh, minoritized Alaskans, had the opportunities that the white settlers had um, had long had. And, and uh, David can certainly add some more names or some events onto that uh, very brief history. Um, one of the things that inspired Egan was finding out how explicit the housing discrimination was. You know, this is well after Shelley Kramer in the 1940s, but just explicitly in the deeds, explicitly in the plats, explicitly in state-run um, housing information locations, openly showing no blacks allowed, no Alaska natives allowed. And it was learning of this, which to his credit, he acted when he learned to his discredit. He had no clue this had happened for decades. Now, there were housing covenants and you talk about this uh, couple, Avon and Mary Lee Campbell, and what happened to them when they tried to get into a, a white neighborhood. I, I can answer that, and, and again, David, if I if I'm missing any details, please chime in. the uh, The neighborhood in question is uh, Rogers Park, and Rogers Park sat up, uh, you know, a, a bit on the on the hill from from what was well, what continues to be uh, the the uh, Chester Creek area. And, you know, Chester Creek would have been the bottomlands and the land was not quite as uh, sturdy and it was a bit marshier and uh, just, just mosquitoes, just generally not a particularly good place to build, but that's nonetheless where most of, um, of Alaska's uh, black men and women lived through the 1940s and 50s an area we, we know as um, East Chester Flats, Days Fairview. But anyways, um, Rogers Park was, uh, up a little bit, it was better land, and in fact, it was the was one of many white parts of town that um, that were, were restricted to whites. And so, to buy uh, buy a plot of land or to resell a home, you oftentimes had to had to sign on what was known as a restrictive covenant, which would have meant you were under no circumstances allowed to uh, buy or resell. Um, unless you were, unless you were white. And so the, the Campbells, Alvin Campbell worked at the railroad, uh, and made a pretty decent salary was, uh, in the financial position to go ahead and, uh, and purchase on this land. And he was told early on as, um, the accounts, uh, purport that, you know, he may, he may build the house, but he will never live in it. And there was a racial slur mixed in and mixed into those warnings. And sure enough, as the home was being constructed, it was, uh, it was burned to the ground in an arson attack. Uh, this where he was to move in. That exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah, just the, the day before he's supposed to move in with his family. And this was really the, um, the instigating measure that would, that would culminate in the creation or establishment of the, uh, Anchorage branch of the NAACP. Now, you talk about the flats, the area where the majority of blacks lived. The military didn't want the soldiers to go there. Why was that? Yeah, David can give you some great anecdotes. <laughs> the, the, the soldiers, um, the, the army did eventually have signs even posted on the outskirts of the neighborhood saying no soldiers allowed. Um, that was more the age-old um, army-fearing... Um, their soldiers getting involved in criminal activities, which there were, 
available in the flats, drugs, uh, prostitution, gambling. Uh, this was actually part and parcel of something that was happening across Alaska. Alaska had always, to this point, been rather generous in allowing red light districts to exist, even in its larger towns. But in the 1950s, you started seeing the army with its larger presence in the territory, using its authority and power to get towns to shut these down. And you see red light districts shut down in Seward and in Fairbanks. And in other places, they simply forbade the soldiers from going there. Yeah. A, a threat. A threat. In, in 1964, the earthquake came. And I thought this was so interesting. What happened to the flats? <laughs> the flats was generally fine. This is one of the interesting aspects about the earthquake. Usually in an environmental disaster, it's, it's minorities, it's poorer individuals that suffer the brunt. Um, that's Katrina. That's the Vanport flood. Um, you know, to this day, that is a rule almost. In Anchorage, it flipped on its head. The areas that were hit hardest by this massive earthquake were exclusive white areas along the Kinnick Arm and the downtown area, which in many places and areas would have been forbidden for black stand to mingle, you know, including some of the theaters. The flats not all of Anchorage was as affected. They shook, but they stood. And that made it, people realized that, you know, this was on stern, on stronger ground and eventually directly accelerated its demise as they realized this land, which had formerly not been desired because it was at the time poorly located, muddy, swampy, mosquito ridden, but with a little bit of work could have been cleared for other purposes and resold a great profit. So the state comes in, partnering with the city, and they enact urban renewal. All the black residents are cleared off the land. Their properties are raised to the ground. In some cases where they had actual ownership that they could prove, they were given a pittance and forced to move away and dissolving and scattering the black community that had been built in Anchorage. Now, you also talk about, uh, in the later chapters, Gladys Knight had this pipe dream film. You know, she was trying to tell America about Black Lives in Alaska, but what happened? Well, the movie wasn't a commercial success. (laughs) It's a very bad movie, apart from her songs. (laughs) Um, and, and I, I, you know, I, again, I'll, I'll defer to, uh, to David because he did much of the research on, uh, on this chapter, but what, you know, certainly one of the things I took from it was that, uh, that Alaska really did, um, occupy, I think a real, uh, significant part of the American imagination, uh, you know, off and on through much of the 20th century. And, and if you ever wanted evidence of that, uh, certainly look at look at Gladys Knight's um, curiosity about Alaska and her kind of interpretation of, of what the pipeline days would have been like. I mean, you know, while it's true that the the, the movie was not a box office success, um, it, it was an attempt to, to really make, I think, a claim uh, on Alaska 
for um, for Black Americans to say, look, you know, this is a place that uh, that that Black Americans have have been in and continue to be, and it's a place where maybe you can you can find love and a good job and an adventure. And so, um, while not a commercial uh, success, I I think it's actually kind of an important moment in Alaska's history that Gladys Knight, you know, decided to to um, to come up here and make this film and to try to put a put a spotlight on. Um, on this kind of, you know, little known aspect of black history. The, the story was important to her. She leveraged her career to this point, to this to be her first film role, her first acting role. The idea that Alaska could be a place was a place. She saw this happening where blacks could come and find good jobs mm-hmm. in, in many ways at far better rates than they were available in the lower 48. She put her, she risked a lot for this movie. Um, she lost a lot because, again, it's a very bad movie, except for her songs. She did this in fact. The 1970s, the big oil boom, but there was also something going on with the criminal justice system. Can you explain to us about the 1978 uh, report, the troubling report about the criminal justice system? Yeah, I, I, I'll. Um, I, I guess I would. I'd make the comment that the 1970s in uh, national history was is seen as this decade of malaise, right? This is, uh, you know, this is the oil embargo. It's inflation. It's Jimmy Carter, and yet in Alaska, it's it's a time of of uh, really unprecedented boom and and growth. If not unprecedented, you'd have to go. I guess let's go back. To era, you know, maybe World War II era. There, there are other moments, unprecedented, probably isn't the right word, but it's, it's, uh, it's a time in which, you know, money is, is really flowing through Alaska because of um, the discovery of oil on the North Slope and because of the, the pipeline construction effort running 800 miles uh, through the, through the, basically bisecting Alaska from Prudhoe Bay down to Valdez. And as such, you get all of these workers who come up to, uh, to work on the pipeline, many of whom are based in the American South and places like Oklahoma and places like Texas, which was, um, which was and is the real seat of the American oil industry. And, uh, and many of these workers are outright hostile to, um, to African Americans, but also Alaska natives. And so, at a time when Alaska's economy is really uh, skyrocketing because of all of this wealth flowing through due to um, due to oil and due to the construction efforts, um, African-Americans and Alaska natives are not sharing in those opportunities to nearly the same extent. Uh, to be clear, as, as Dave and I have pointed out, uh, there are opportunities to be had, and there are certainly examples of African-Americans and Alaska Native men and women uh, who, who do quite well in these years. Uh, before the oil boom, there's the, there's the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which is going to really redefine relations between uh, the Alaska state government, the federal government, and, um, and Alaska Native uh, peoples. But it, it, it does become very clear that the 70s uh, is going to experience this kind of uptick in racial hostilities, um, kind of despite the, uh, the economic uh, opportunities that are found with the oil boom. In Chapter 8, you talk about um, Julius Marshall. And in 1985, uh, during that time when things started slowing down, 
Can you tell us about that story? Julius Marshall was the mechanic, right, Ian? Yes. So as the economic downturns in 1985 crashes in Alaska, in fact, banks start closing, housing industry gets turned upside down. There's exodus for the first time in decades. Um, you do see an increase in hate-related acts, acts of violence caused by racial hatred, which is another American constant. The economy goes bad. Racism goes up. Julius Marshall was a mechanic. Again, he had man, he had found his way up here. He had found a job. Just in the matter of working, he got robbed and killed. Um, killed by a man who rather openly had a racial pejorative on his vehicle. That he was a hunter of them. It's one of uh, several, I, I, what we might call, high-profile hate crimes or instances of, um, of, of hate, let's put it that way. I mean, in this case, we're talking very explicitly about a homicide. Um, in other cases, you know, there would be uh, students in schools who would, uh, you know, who would maybe utter various racial slurs or kind of get mixed up in, in white power movements. And, uh, and there were several episodes of, of racial intimidation in the 1980s. And so the, again, the broader context here is you have this great big oil boom in the 1970s, early eighties that, um, that, that is not necessarily going to provide equal levels of opportunity. Um, but does bring, I think, a, a different kind of population to Alaska, um, one a bit more maybe conservative, one a bit more Southern. You know, we could, that, that's, there's a little bit of nuance to that discussion, but nonetheless, um, by the time you get into the 80s, again, as David points out, you have the, the bust, the, the price of oil comes down rather precipitously. And, um, and with that, a kind of series of social dislocations in which uh, still another wave of, um, of uh, hate crimes occur. And, and against that backdrop, we have the Marshall uh, episode that you're referring to. Now, you talk about the fact that um, Blacks and Natives are convicted of burglary, embezzlement, 450% of longer sentences when they're convicted of these crimes. Uh, can, can we say something about what's going on there? Yeah, that was certainly the the findings of the, of the report. Um, you know, to the extent that that's still the case, I I don't I don't quite know. I'd have to I'd have to see the latest crime reports and conviction rates. But uh, but yeah, what you're referring to is a, a period of time in, in which the criminal justice system uh, had these these very endemic inequities, in which um, Alaska Native people and people of African descent in Alaska uh, just were were being you know when convicted convicted of similar crimes as uh, their white counterparts. They were serving longer uh, terms in prison. They were, uh, they were facing unequal levels of justice. And, uh, and to the credit of activists in the Native community and to the credit of activists in the Black community up here, I mean, they, they did the work to really spotlight that. And, and so over the next 20 or 30 years, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, we've, 
we've seen some of this redress, but of course, what we do know nationwide is that the criminal justice system retains these inequities. Um, we know that that obviously mass incarceration rates are far higher um, among um, among African Americans and Native peoples, and so a lot of those um, a lot of those inequities we see in our criminal justice system play out in a in a really uh, severe way in Alaska, and so the book was trying to really grapple with um, with that reality, but also balance it with um, the perspective of, of activism and the fact that you know people were aware of these inequities and that they were determined to do something about them. Ian added that section uh, found the the report you're mentioning. It was important that while also pointing out the exceptionalism of Alaska in the opportunities and the, you know, booming during a time of otherwise national malaise, that there were aspects of Alaska that were very much in line with inequalities felt elsewhere across the country. These changes, there have been some changes, but they've been slow in the early 1990s when the first black governor was to be appointed, or excuse me, when the first black judge was to be appointed in the state, the governor actually threatened a constitutional crisis over not approving them until finally relenting at the nearly last minute. That Was that, was that Wally Hickel, David? Yes, Hickel over Larry Card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the overall message you would like the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Well, I, I would, I, I think David just summed it up really well. And, and I would just reinforce the point that, you know, this is a history that is, um, fits squarely within, uh, within, I think, a national history of, uh, of black contributions and black resistance and activism, uh, as well as, uh, racism, oppression and white supremacy. Uh, Alaska really bears, both of those trends, I think, in, in clear ways. On the one hand, it's a place that um, that consistent strains of racism have been present, and you know sometimes those strains of racism have been maybe greater than other times, but but they have been a defining feature of Alaskan life. But yet, um, there's far more to the story. This is this is uh, this is a story of black self activity. It's a story of activism and black excellence. We see over and over again uh, a black population that you know, despite being relatively small. Um, punches significantly above its weight when it comes to entrepreneurialism, when it comes to, uh, you know, success in, in various fields, whether it's education, whether it's law, whether it's business, whether it's in the military, whatever the case would be, uh, we see the benchmarks of black success um, throughout. And so I think we just wanted to really cover um, cover that the, the story from a, from a well-rounded um uh, from a well-rounded vantage point to suggest that, you know, we, we have a lot to celebrate in Alaska, but we also can't ignore the realities of um, racism and discrimination. Well, in I'm a similar way, Ian often says that a point of this book, and he didn't mention it there, so I will say it for him, <laughs> is that it's important that the representation within the historiography is there. This representation matters. To have this in the available historical record, that Blacks have been a part of Alaska since the early to mid-19th century, an important active part in the construction of Alaska as we know it today. Yeah. Thanks, David. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I would like to ask you, what is your next project you're going to be working on? 
Hmm. Well, let me think about that while David responds. <laughs> um, I do lots of love projects. Um, I'm currently consulting on an LGBT history of Alaska uh, that's just getting off the ground. Otherwise, I write weekly for the Anchorage Daily News, the bigger new paper in the state, and an outlet for every little uh, wonderful history story I want to track down, whether it's an old steamer wrecking like I did last week or Japanese war bombing balloons from the 1940s next week. And and I I would suggest uh, to to your listeners that they that they log on to the Anchorage Daily News and uh, and go ahead and read David's weekly columns on um, on Anchorage history and Alaska history more generally they're they're spectacular and he's certainly the leading public historian and uh, I think the most visible historian that the state has right now so I, I want to nod to David's work as for as for mine you know I I would really like to to continue on. Uh, with with the history of the Pacific, you know we we've seen the the connections between Alaska and the Lower Forty Eight and in East Asia. And one of the things I would like to do is really um, learn more about those those connections. And I I don't know if if your listeners are aware, but one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse, high schools in um, in the United States is actually Betty Davis East Anchorage High, uh, not more than three miles from where I'm sitting right now. And it's uh, it's a school that has kind of equal numbers of uh, of East Asian students and um, and Pacific Islander students and Alaska Native students and African American students and uh, and white students and it's it's this this really um, wonderful place and, and it does suggest the the diversity of Alaska and so one of the questions I have is kind of how has that diversity um, come to be and and you know what were some of the the bumps along the road and how did we end up here in Anchorage, Alaska, with um, the most diverse high school uh, in the country, I think there's a there's a real fascinating history there to tell a, um, a story about Alaska, but also about the nation and uh, its diverse mosaic of peoples. Betty Davis East High, um, a school coincidentally named after a black legislator and educator. Oh yes, we'd remiss if we didn't say that. Thank you so much, David. I was just going to ask you that. Thank you again for being on the show and thank you for writing this book. It's been my joy. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.